in a lonely cattle stable in Bethlehem. There were signs of new construction on a mighty span. That in the hearts of all the lost, we cast a shadow of a cross. Cause that babe of Mary's crib would soon be mercy's bridge. Hope was just across the river on heaven's side, but we were much too weak to swim with noble pride. God made a way that wouldn't fail. A wooden cross and three rusted nails on Calvary's rugged ridge, where mercy built a bridge. No, we can cross, but we must cross the Calvary way that leads from night into the brightest day. Build a bridge. Now we can cross, but we must cross the Calvary way that leads from night into the brightest day. Where Jesus died, that you and I could live. Leave all your guilt for mercy. Build a bridge. Thank you, Quartet, for a good song today. In your Bible, the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John 14, we're going to read several scriptures. They're up there for you so you can follow in your Bible. As soon as you find the place, stand please, and let's read God's Word together today, okay? John chapter 14, and we'll begin reading in verse 16. John 14 and 16. And I will pray the Father, said Jesus. These are all the words of the Lord Jesus. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. And then verse 25 or 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, 
whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And then if you will go with me to chapter number 15 and verse 26. And when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And then in chapter 16 and verse 6, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come and he shall glorify me, and you may be seated. The setting for this passage of Scripture is the eve of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In just a few hours, four, five, six hours, hence, then the Lord Jesus Christ will die. And he was teaching his disciples an extremely vital truth, a doctrinal truth about the Holy Spirit. And he said in verse 16, now I'm going to leave you. I'm going to be gone from you after these three years of intense fellowship with you. I'm going to be leaving, but the comforter, he calls him, he refers to him, here's the comforter, he will take my place. So one thing you should know about the Holy Spirit is that he is the substitute for Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send the comforter. The word comforter there was a Greek term called paraclete, and it means the one who will walk along beside you. So the Holy Spirit is the one that Jesus sent to take his place, to be his substitute, to walk beside us as we go through life. In verse 16, he tells them, now, I have only been with you for three and a half years or so, and I'm leaving you, but he will never leave you. In verse 16, he will abide with you forever, Jesus says to them. And so the Holy Spirit is not a commuter. He doesn't come and go. He is here, and he will abide with you forever as long as you are living on this earth. If you will look in verse 17 with me, Jesus refers to him as the spirit of truth. If you go over to chapter 15 and verse 26, he repeats that, even the spirit of truth that proceedeth proceedeth from the Father. And then if you will look in chapter 16 and verse 13, he says again, he is the spirit of truth. That's an interesting title 
that Jesus Christ describes the Holy Spirit by. So he is going to come and stay with you forever. And he is the spirit of truth. He will never lead into error. He only leads to truth. The word spirit in your Bible, you should understand it because we have a hard time comprehending the idea of a spirit being. We have watched too many movies and read too many childhood books about ghosts and things like that. And so spirit can often be misinterpreted by people. The word spirit comes from a a Greek term, pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. And that word is a familiar word to us. We talk about somebody getting pneumonia, same word, the root word, P-N-E-U-M-O-N-I-A. The we talk about a pneumatic hammer, and the guy's down here with a jackhammer is jumping up and down. It's empowered by wind and air. And so the word pneuma means air or breath. That's where pneumonia is, is the word is coined from. It means wind. Sometimes in the New Testament, when the wind blows, it's called the pneuma, the wind of God. And often in your King James Bible, the word is ghost, the Holy Ghost. Well, the reason you see that is those translators were accurately translating the word pneuma, the holy wind, the holy air or breath, the holy wind of God, pneuma, very important. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us something else in chapter uh, 14 and verse 17. The spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive or understand because it seeth him not, and because the people of the world can't see him, they don't believe that he exists. And they don't know him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and shall be in you. And so Jesus said that he's going to come and dwell in you. And just keep your finger there in chapter 14. Go to chapter 20 with me for just a second. And in chapter 20, it's one week later, just one week later, and the Lord Jesus Christ appears in the room where the apostles are gathered together. And in John chapter 20, and in verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them. There's that word pneuma again. And he said unto them, Receive ye the holy wind breath of God, ghost, the Holy Ghost. And so one week after he told them the Holy Spirit would come and indwell them, he came and he breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Now, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter, or in John 20, it's only the apostles who were indwelled with the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 2, just a few weeks later, it's the entire realm of Christendom. All the believers that were on the earth were gathered there at Pentecost, and they were all indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And since that time, every believer, every Christian, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You may not understand that or think that because you say, I can't feel anything. But a spirit is not subject to feeling. The breath of God 
indwells you if you are a believer. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Now, if you're taking notes with me, number one today that I want to establish in your mind, though, is that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. I want you to understand the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He is a person. Jesus used personal pronouns to describe him, and you wouldn't do that about a thing. A thing would be it, but a person is he or she or all those pronouns. If you look in chapter 14 and verse 17, we have the spirit of truth, it seeth him not, there's a personal pronoun, a male pronoun, a person. It neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he, there's three hymns and a he right there <laughs> in verse 17. And you go with me over to chapter number 16, go to verse 13. I'm establishing in your mind, hopefully, that the Holy Spirit is a person, and Jesus referred to him seven times in chapter 16 and verse 13. Seven times he says he or him or himself. Now, you wouldn't say that if he were an impersonal force. You wouldn't call him an it if he is a person, would you? And he is a force. He has all power is given unto him, but we don't refer to him as a power. We refer to him as a person. He is not an influence. A lot of people just think the Holy Spirit is a positive influence in our lives. That's an insult to him. No, he's more than an influence. He has influence. He influences, but he is more than an influence. He is a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's hard for you, it's hard for me. It's always been difficult for me to get my mind around the idea that a person can exist without a body. Now, are you listening to me? Don't miss this. It's always difficult to conceive of some, someone being a person if they don't have a body. And our minds just go immediately to some idea of a ghost or a spirit like that. But you understand, someday you're going to be a spirit without a body. And when you die, the body's going to be in the casket or they might incinerate it. But the spirit is going to live on. If you believe the Christian message at all, you believe in the immortality of the soul, don't you? And so you talk about your deceased loved ones as if they're living. You say, well, I wonder what mama's doing. Well, mama's buried. Mama's body's out here in a graveyard somewhere. But you don't believe her person is there, her personality. You believe her spirit, her soul, left that body and went to be with the Lord, absent from the body and present with the Lord Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus referred to him as a person. And we also know that he has all the marks of what we call personhood. How do you determine if anything is a person rather than an it, a thing? Well, most of the time we look at it from the idea, 
is mind, emotion, and will. And I could take you on a long Bible study trip here and show you that the Bible says that every person has mind, emotion, and will. That's what defines us as persons. And the Holy Spirit has a mind. He thinks. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says he has all knowledge. So the Holy Spirit, being God, knows everything that God knows. He is an omniscient being. And then he feels a person has emotions as opposed to just a thing. The Holy Spirit has emotions. In fact, he can be grieved. He can be hurt. And the Holy Spirit has a will. He makes decisions, and he acts on those decisions. And the Holy Spirit even, for example, in the book of Acts, directed Paul. He made choices and decisions and told Paul, go over here and go over there. And uh, he directed him. He led him in his ministry. And another thing that makes me know that the Holy Spirit is a person is he, only, he does things that only people do, that machines and computers and robots and things don't do. The Holy Spirit, for example, prays, Romans chapter 8. He makes intercession for us. An influence or a force doesn't pray, a person prays. That's something characteristic and unique to persons. In Ephesians 4, he can be grieved, which means he can be made sad. He can be saddened. A thing can't be saddened. Only persons are saddened. And then in Acts chapter 5, Peter said to Ananias, Ananias, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. He can be lied to. If I looked at that chair and told a lie, you wouldn't say I lied to a chair. You can't lie to a thing. You always lie to a person, to an intelligent, rational being. And Peter said, why did Satan rise up and fill your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Boy, what a terrible sin. Now, occasionally in the Bible, he does take on some sort of visible form. When Jesus was baptized, he came in the form of a dove and lit on the shoulder of the Lord Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, as you remember. And you say, well, wonder why he did that. Well, because there's one of the few places in the Bible where we see the Trinity all in one place. The voice of the Father in heaven, this is my beloved Son. The dove lighting upon his shoulder and the Son being immersed in the water by John the Baptist. And so he took on a visible form. In Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, he comes as a rushing mighty wind and as flames of fire that sat on the heads of the people who were there. He, he took this visible form because there was a point to be made, a lesson to be learned by the people present. So I hope you understand the Holy Spirit is a person. Don't ever refer to him as an it. That's an insult to him. He is as much a person as is God the Father and God the Son. But secondly, I want you to also know that the Holy Spirit is God. He's not just a regular person. He is God. And so we talk about the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we know that throughout the Bible, 
He is always working. He is the one working quietly and behind the scenes. It's God and Jesus Christ who are out front, if I could say it like that. And it is the Holy Spirit who, well, Jesus said it here. He said, he proceedeth from the Father. The, the Father sends him to do certain works that he does certain ministries. And so how you meet the Holy Spirit in the second verse of the Bible. You don't have to go in your Bible very far to discover the Holy Spirit. And you read there that the Spirit of God moved upon the waters of the creation even before it was formed, when it was just the basic elements, if you will, and the Holy Spirit works there. And when God was fashioning the body of of uh, the first man, Adam, Job said in chapter 33 and 4, the Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. And do you remember in Genesis, it says that God breathed into Adam, into man, the breath of life. The breath, wait a minute, that's our word, pneuma. The air, the wind, the breath, the ghost of the Holy Spirit was breathed into the lungs, into the very body of that first man, Adam. And he became a living soul. He became the image of God. In fact, that's what caused the image of God within his being. And so the the Holy Spirit is God. He was a part of the creation process. He knows everything according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He's omniscient. In Romans 8 and 11, it says that the Holy Spirit is the one who raised up Jesus from the dead, and he will quicken your mortal bodies also, meaning that on the day of the resurrection, who is it that will resurrect your body from the grave? It's the Holy Spirit. The Bible clearly teaches that. You see, you wonder why in the world there's not a greater emphasis upon and teaching on the Holy Spirit. I've made a visit recently in a home And the man told me, I went to such and such Baptist church for 20 years or something, and he said, I never heard a message on the Holy Spirit. Is that not tragic indeed? I mean, this is the third person of the Trinity. This is the ministry of the one who is ministering on so many levels, I can't tell you about them today. He will be the power of the resurrection, Romans 8 and 11. We know that he's God because Jesus said in Mark 3 and 28, he can be blasphemed. Turn with me there real quickly, if you will. In the book of Mark and chapter number 3 in your Bible, is, this is such a, an important and solemn thing that you, you don't need to miss it. Mark chapter 4, verse 28, Jesus said, Verily I say to you, all the sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of man, and blasphemies, wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost can never forgiveness, hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And the reason that he said that was because people there were accusing him of being motivated and controlled by the devil, verse number 30. And so, in response to people saying about him, he is empowered by the devil, Jesus said, you watch out. You're about to cross a line, and if you cross that line, you will never have forgiveness. 
We call this the unpardonable sin. It's the only sin for which there is no forgiveness that's named in the Bible. To blaspheme means to bring shame on someone's name, to show great disrespect. It means to drag God's name through the mud. And Jesus said if people do that, there will be no place of forgiveness. What a, what a powerful, powerful warning. And then there's another, so I say that the Holy Spirit is God because only God can really be blasphemed in a manner that can never be forgiven. Keep that in mind. In our world today, there's no reverence much left. In our world today, people think nothing about using God's name as a swear word, but worse, some of the movies and some of the books now and some of the things that people say, I, I don't know how it affects you. It makes my skin crawl. And I wonder, have they never had anybody teach them how serious the sin of blasphemy against God and against the Holy Spirit is? And there's another reason I say that the Holy Spirit is God, equal to God is in Matthew chapter 28 when the Lord gave us the Great Commission. He gave us what we call the baptismal formula. And now thousands of times I've stood up here in this tank with water up to about here, and I have lowered a believer under the water, and I've brought them up, and every time I've used that formula, the formula is I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who taught us that baptismal formula that we use. And we baptize our converts with that name, just one name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, and the person is baptized, immersed in the water, picturing the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also name God the Father and the Holy Spirit as participants in that act of consecration. So the Holy Spirit is a person, but he's not a normal person. The Holy Spirit is Almighty God in human flesh, a member of the Trinity, equal with the Lord Jesus Christ and equal with God the Father himself. My, what, no wonder we need a lot of teaching on the Holy Spirit. The importance of Him, I cannot never overstate. So I've kind of given you that introduction to talk about the present ministry of the Holy Spirit. What is He doing right now? You can read back in the Bible in Bible days and know what it says, but what about what is He doing right now? That if, how does this affect my life, the price of the eggs in my china? Well, if you go to 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us and is inspired of the Holy Spirit, according to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 and 18, where it says that holy men of old spake as they were moved, born along, carried, controlled by the Holy Spirit. So here's the way it works. Here's one of the Bible authors 
And let's say it's Peter or Paul or John. And they're sitting somewhere with a piece of parchment, and they have a pen that they dip in an inkwell, and they begin to write. And the writing that they write is the writing of Scripture. But they're not the author. They're more like a secretary who is taking dictation. The Holy Spirit of God works in their minds, in their hearts. He guides their pen because they can't write a perfect book. They can't see the future. They can't know what they don't know. And so the Holy Spirit of God directs every word of the Bible. And we have a book, God's book. You look at your Bible, you hold it right now in your hand, and you hold the very words of God. I know today, I know that uh, I've got a phone and I've got on it the Bible and I've got a computer and I've got on it the Bible. Now, I'm, I, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad here, but I can't, I can't pick it up and feel it on my computer. <laughs> I guess that's just the, the, the wanderings of an old man. I don't know. I can't feel the computer and I can hold that. I can hold that Apple computer, and I say, my soul, this thing is cold as death. But I pick up my Bible, and I say, this is the Word of God. That's just a personal peculiarity. If you've got your Apple out today, that's okay with me. I don't care, but I like to hold something that I can say is the Word of God. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. The Holy Spirit gave you the Bible. Strange in every book in my library has here the title of the book, and down here somewhere it has the name of the author. I wonder, maybe we ought to start printing Bibles and say, Holy Bible by the Holy Spirit. Because he was the original source of all the thoughts and concepts and even the very words of Scripture. The Lord Jesus said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word will never pass away. And they were inspired by the Spirit of God. By the way, that word inspired is kind of like that word pneuma. It means to breathe out. And the Holy Spirit breathed out into the minds of those authors, those human beings, the word of God. And Jesus promised to preserve it. And so we have it even today. But not only did he give us the Scripture, he's active in our salvation. And there in the book of John, chapter 16, and verse 8 through 11, it says that when he has come, he will reprove. And that word means the same thing, basically, as to convict. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come that's going to fall upon the world when Christ returns. So, If you're sitting here today and the Holy Spirit is working in your life and convicting you, it's the Holy Spirit is convicting you. I got a call from a gentleman this week, and he said, would you be willing to see my granddaughter? And I said, of course. And uh, what do you want me to see her about? I think she's ready to get saved. She wants to know, she wants to come to know Christ. And so it was yesterday. And uh, they met me here at the church office. And we sat down at my desk, and I presented the gospel to them 
as simply and plainly as I could. This is a 13-year-old girl, but she, she's a very mature 13-year-old. She's more like a college student. And I went over the gospel for, oh, almost an hour. I was very thorough in it. And at the end of that time, I said, now, do you want to trust Christ? I almost acted like I was going to try to talk her out of it. No, sir. No, sir. And she prayed with me and sweetly received the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point of my story, though. She has been coming to church here a few times, two, three, four times. And why is it did she suddenly want to get saved? It's because that verse right there. You see, I don't have to preach the plan of salvation for the Holy Spirit to work every time. I got, I got one of those mean phone calls I get pretty often. <laughs> and when you preach on television, you get it all, buddy, believe me. If I could only have time to tell you about them. <laughs> and some bird calls me, uh, some gentleman called me. Uh, from over, he said, I'm vacationing at Myrtle Beach, and I listened to you preach. It was a wonderful sermon. He just bragged and bragged and bragged, and I'm sitting there just blowing up like a balloon, you know. And then he said, but you didn't give the plan of salvation. I'm disappointed in you. And then he laid into me. Well, I usually give the plan of salvation. I probably gave it then. I, he, he, was, he was getting a cup of coffee when I did that or something. But the reality is you don't just preach the plan of salvation all the time. And here's the, here's the mystery. You don't have to. When the Holy Spirit is in the building and the Word of God is being preached, it's amazing how He can work on people's li- in people's lives. And you're not even talking about that subject, but He's working. And so this little girl comes to church two or three times, and she wants to be saved. And so she came And she received Christ as her Savior. You see, he is active in salvation. The Holy Spirit is the agent of your salvation. Now, let me show you that real quick. And man, I'm I'm running out of time, but I've got to get this in for you. John 3. Will you turn there in your Bible? John 3, one of the most familiar passages in Scripture. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, except you be born again, circle that word in your Bible. That's the same word as saved. We would use that as saved. But the real theological term there is regenerated, a big word. Regenerate. Like a generator produces power. To regenerate is to redo it again. Jesus said, you need to be born again, regenerated, and if you're not, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, no, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, the pneuma, the wind, the breath of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. And the wind, Numa, bloweth, where it listeth, wherever it wants to go. Nobody controls the wind. You hear the sound of it, you can't see it. You cannot tell where it came from. You can't tell where it goes. 
It's totally invisible, but so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, and He is the one who produces life. Listen to me. Hear me carefully. Salvation is not praying a prayer. You can pray the sinner's prayer a thousand times. That's not salvation. It is important, an important part. But because you pray doesn't mean you're saved. You can even think in your mind certain things that I believe, and I'll believe this, and I'll believe that. But you're not saved. Hear me. Don't misunderstand me on this. Nobody is saved until the Holy Spirit of God comes and produces life in them. Born again, regenerated, the Holy Spirit producing eternal life in them. Now, study your Bible and you'll see that I'm right on that. And then quickly after salvation, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And that simply means He tries to produce holiness in us. Godly living. He lives in us, and He will be in you, and He will be with you. And let me just read to you a list of all the things the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and in my life as believers. He indwells us or lives within every true believer, John 14, 17. When we read the Bible, He illumines us. That's the word used in the Bible. Ephesians says that. That simply means He turns the lights on. When I read the Bible, it is the Holy Spirit of God who gives me understanding of the things of God. And when we worship Him, we worship Him in spirit and in truth, John chapter 4, verse 24. And when we witness to people and share the gospel, He convicts them of sin. And when I'm tempted, He gives me power to overcome temptation. And when I need wisdom or guidance, remember His name is the Spirit of Wisdom, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17. He is the one I depend upon for wisdom. Because I'm a pastor and I have responsibilities of a church and a school and all the various things that we're involved in, I pray every day, God, give me wisdom. I know that I'm not smart enough to anticipate and figure out and, and, and have the proper knowledge of everything that's happening in, in this ministry. And so I pray. I say, God, give me wisdom. Every single day, I think I pray that prayer. And the one thing I know that he's doing in every one of our lives is he's seeking to form the character of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the fruit of the Spirit. He's seeking to make me a loving person, a joyful person, a person with peace in my heart in the middle of a turbulent time. He is seeking to make me kind. Kind, I said. Kind when the kids irritate you. Kind when people treat you wrong and you want to jump back at them. Kind and righteous, goodness, virtuous. He's trying to build up the faith in us and give us greater confidence in the Word of God. 
He is seeking all those things there, hope, all those things that are part of being filled with the Spirit. And He's working every day to do that in your life. He wants you to have those qualities. And one other very important thing about the Holy Spirit's ministry today is whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon us, the filling of the Holy Spirit that I spoke to you about last week, the control of the Spirit of God, where He controls us like alcohol controls a person who's intoxicated. The filling of the Spirit is always for the same thing. He doesn't fill you for the Spirit to do this and somebody else to do that and somebody else something else. He fills us with the Holy Spirit for service, to get His work done and to accomplish things for all of eternity. Now, I sent out a text yesterday. I hope you got it. And the text said, I'm going to speak to you about how to experience the Holy Spirit. So if you've got a piece of paper or a blank space in the back of your Bible, you may want to write down, and I'm going to give you four things real quickly if you want to experience the Holy Spirit in your life. I don't want you to miss this. Number one, you must thirst for the Holy Spirit. You must thirst. There must be a thirst. There must be a strong desire in your heart. John 7, 37, Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me, and he will have living water. And he was referring to the filling of the Spirit of God. You must desire God's power, God's presence, which means you must think in your own mind, you know what? I can't do this all by myself. One of the real problems we have in contemporary American society, I believe, is that we're so self-reliant. We're so independent. I can do it. I'm competent. I'm an intelligent person. I can do this. Well, there are things you can't do. You must thirst. You must see the need for the Holy Spirit's power in your life. Number two. There must be deep, deep repentance if you're going to have Holy Spirit power on your life. Deep repentance. And what do I mean by that? Well, the word repent means to change your mind. Change your mind about what? About sin. You must understand that it was sin that held the hammer that drove the nails into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must loathe sin and hate sin. Sin is not a picadillo. Sin murdered Almighty God on the cross. You must learn to hate sin. Ye that love the Lord hate evil, the psalmist wrote. Do you really hate sin? Or is it just a fact of life? And we, when we hate it, we repent of it. And the way we repent, we acknowledge it and we confess it to God and we turn from it. And thirdly, after we have, when we have this deep desire to know God and to know Him in a way we've never known Him, to have His presence so real in our lives, number two, then we repent. We change our mind, our direction about sin and about ourselves and about the Savior and then we make a full surrender, number three. We surrender our life to Him. Now, what is surrender? You've watched the movies. Hands up. I give up. I'm not going to fight it anymore. I'm, I'm submitted to you. 
a full surrender of your life means obedience in small things and large things. There are three negative commands in the New Testament about surrendering to the Lord. First, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And that means don't wound him, don't hurt him. When I was a little boy and I was mischievous, I grieved my mother. I vexed my teacher. See, my mother loved me. She had aspirations for me. She didn't want me to do what I was doing. My teacher just said, you just need to behave. Big difference. We grieve those who love us. And God loves you. And don't grieve his spirit. Secondly, don't quench the spirit. First Thessalonians 5. To quench a thirst is to put it out. To quench a fire is to put it out. And we do that. The Holy Spirit rises up within us and we put it out. The Holy Spirit says, you could teach that Sunday school class, put it out. You could witness to that friend, put it out, stamp it out. The Holy Spirit says, you need to do thus and so, put it out. And we quench him. We don't let him burn up fuller in our lives. When he rises up within you, there's just one word, and that is, yes, Lord. When the Holy Spirit rises up within you, the book of Romans chapter 6 says we're to yield ourselves to him. Romans 12 says we're to present ourselves a living sacrifice, the idea of the altar and the little sacrifice on it, giving up its life to God. And we're to be the living sacrifice, giving up our lives to God. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 32 is an important verse. I've quoted it often to you. It says, God gives the Holy Spirit to them that obey him. You see a person with God's power evidently in their life, that's an obedient person. And when the Holy Spirit, when, when, when God asks you to do something and you say no, you quench and grieve the Spirit of God, you resist the Spirit of God, and He doesn't work within you anymore. When it rains like that, that means I can preach 30 more minutes, doesn't it? <laughs> the last thing, number one, we thirst. Two, we repent. Three, we surrender. And four, we pray. And oh, what a great verse is Luke 11 and 3. How much more will the whole Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? If you can give good gifts to your children... Why do you not think the Heavenly Father can give even better gifts to you and He'll give you the Holy Spirit? If you pray, there's a promise the Holy Spirit will be working in your life. Now, the other thing I would say is that this is a continuous thing. It's not a one-time forever deal. It requires daily repentance, daily confession, daily obedience. And before I preach today, as I always do, I got down on my face before God in my office. And I said, God, show me if there's anything in my life that will keep you from using me today. And I confess to you, Lord, 
my imperfections. And, oh, Lord, come and control me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. This works. I was thinking how I could explain this to you. And this week I had an experience. You don't hear me talk about personal experiences much. But it was so clear to me. I'm, I'm thinking how can I explain how the Holy Spirit works using his word and working through our consciences, bringing things to our remembrance. And I was thinking how can I explain that? And a thought came to me as clear as lightning. I mean, it, I couldn't miss it that the Holy Spirit works through the Scripture always, but He works, He takes the Scripture and applies it to our conscience. And I'm thinking, that's a good theory, Bill, but theologically, are you on good ground before you preach that because you don't want to mislead a whole bunch of people? The Holy Spirit always uses His Word, and He works through our consciences. He applies the word to our conscience. And suddenly, the words came out of nowhere. I mean, just like, I was getting dressed. I wasn't even sitting, studying, didn't have my Bible in my hand. I was getting dressed. I hadn't read these words. I hadn't read a book or in the Bible. I hadn't thought about it a whole lot until just right then, it just came came to me that the Holy Spirit takes his word, applies it to our conscience, and that's how he directs us. And I said, boy, I'm on to something. So I go immediately, and I pick up my Bible, and I think of Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, where Paul said, my conscience also bearing me witness through the Holy Ghost. Ah. I was so excited because that was an absolute confirmation to me that the Holy Spirit gave me that. That he always works through his word. But how does he work through his word? Do you always have to read it? No. Do you remember Jesus said he will bring all things to your remembrance? John 14, 26. If you'll saturate your mind and your heart with the scripture, you'll give the Holy Spirit something to work with. And he'll work with you. So, I'm out of time. Not a good way to end a sermon. But stand to your feet with me if you will. I come to the garden alone While the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear the Son of God discloses and He walks with me Every day.
Father has ever known. He speaks, and the sound of His voice is so sweet. The birds hush their singing, and the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other ever